In the last episode, I spoke with Amber O'Neill Johnston about living books, what they are, how to recognize them, and where to find them. Charlotte Mason said that lesson material should be based on two things, and two things only, living books and real things. Not lectures from the teacher or boring textbooks, not diagrams or drawings of things. It should be based on living books written by people who are knowledgeable about a subject and preferably experience what they're writing about firsthand, as well as real things that the child can gain knowledge from with their five senses. In other words, we want to learn about things, about events, about people, from people who have experienced those things. And we want to get to the primary source. We don't want secondhand knowledge. And today I am going to talk about how to use those primary sources and living books. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of four. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. A lot of what we do in schools, both in public, private, charter, even homeschools, a lot of them are just based on tradition. And now tradition isn't a bad thing. A lot of the time, traditional practices have been handed down because they work. But in the case of traditional education, it's not exactly what works for the child, but works well for a system. And we just do things because this is how they have been done for however long before us, and it's been handed down. However, when we look at cognitive science and educational psychology, there is a lot that we are not employing, that we should be employing. And as I've studied Charlotte Mason's writings for a few years now, and I've also done a lot of reading into current research on cognitive science, I'm constantly mind blown to find how parallel they are. The three tools that I'm sharing today, teaching tools, are from Charlotte Mason's volumes and from the book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. The book, Make It Stick, is based on years of research into cognitive science and educational psychology. The authors start the book out by busting some myths around the fashionable ideas that are common in traditional education. So I'm going to do that before I begin talking about these time-tested and science-backed teaching methods. So the first myth, reading a chapter or book over and over again is the most effective way to remember information. This is wrong. Charlotte Mason busted this myth over 100 years ago in her 20 principles. In her 20 principles, she said, a single reading is insisted upon because children have naturally great power of attention, but this force is dissipated by the rereading of passages and also by questioning, summarizing, and the like. In other words, we shouldn't read a passage three times because our child wasn't listening. Nor should we mindlessly read a passage over and over again the night before a test, thinking that the more times we read it, the more likely it will stick in our mind. Now, maybe we remembered it for the 24 hours, but we forgot it 
soon after. It really didn't work, did it? Because I don't remember most of what I crammed for in college. Now, Charlotte Mason doesn't mean that we shouldn't reread beloved books. No, no, no. She's saying that when trying to learn something, rereading the passage over and over and over again won't do a darn thing. And tons of research backs her up. Rereading doesn't work. And this is actually the first chapter in Make It Stick. And it provides gobs of research showing that rereading over and over again will not make you learn it. Myth two, each person learns differently and the teacher's job is to adapt lesson material to fit each student's learning style. And this is also wrong. There is no research to back up the idea of learning styles. What researchers have found is that subjects are learned better when taught in the way that makes sense for that subject. For example, PE and art are hard to understand when taught orally and grammar is difficult to understand kinesthetically. PE should be taught by moving your bodies and visually seeing your PE teacher demonstrate what you need to do. Same with sports. Art, it's hard to sit and listen to a to instructions on how to draw. It's much easier to see that done. And grammar is would be very hard to be explained through physical movement, I guess. So each subject is best taught in the way that makes sense for that subject. Scientists have also found that people do have unique expression styles. Some people express their ideas visually, some orally, and others kinesthetically. However, everyone learns best when the material is presented in the way that is best suited for that subject. And this is a relief, I think, for many teachers and parents, because when you go into homeschooling, you think, oh no, this child's just seems like he likes to move his body. I'm going to need to present this material this way and this child this way and this way. You don't have to do that. However, it is really important to give your child time and space to express their knowledge in whatever way feels the most comfortable for them. And I'm going to talk about that. Uh, That's one of the teaching tools, narration. So I'll talk about that in a little bit. So myth three is that testing isn't an effective learning tool. And this is actually wrong. There are a lot of negative connotations associated with testing, but it can be a very effective tool. In Make It Stick, the authors explain that retrieval, the act of retrieving knowledge at will, is very effective at solidifying knowledge and expanding long-term memory. Myth four. Students learn best from lectures. And I would say this is wrong, but let me explain why. When a teacher is giving a lecture, whether it is in elementary school, high school, college, it is their narration. They have read the books. They have sorted through the information and decided what is important and what is not. They compile the information and present what they've learned. Essentially, they are doing the work of education. They are learning. And the students are forced to listen to the teacher's narration. Although students may pick up some things here and there from a lecture, they learn so much more 
when they read the books, the primary sources, they synthesize the information and present what they've learned. They are doing the work of their education. So those aren't the most effective methods, then what should we be doing instead? The first tool is narration, otherwise known as elaboration in Make It Stick. Narration is so integral to Charlotte Mason's method that it's one of her 20 principles. She said, as knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced, children should tell back after a single reading or hearing, or should write on some part of what they have read. Narration is simply telling back what you heard, what you know. In Charlotte Mason's educational method, narration was the replacement for multiple choice tests and worksheets. The act of simply telling back what you know may seem ineffective, but science is proving that this small and simple act is much more effective than traditional methods of testing and other types of busy work. The ability to narrate is natural. It's something that we are all born with as human beings, wanting to share what we know. Charlotte said that narrating is an art, like poetry making or painting, because it is there in every child's mind waiting to be discovered, and it is not the result of any process of disciplinary education. This amazing gift with which normal children are born is allowed to lie fallow in their education. So what does current research say about this practice of narration, or another word for it is elaboration? Well, the first large-scale investigation was published in 1917, and in this study, children in grades 3, 5, 6, and 8 studied brief biographies from Who's Who in America. Some of them were directed to spend varying lengths of the study time looking up from the material and silently reciting to themselves what it contained. In other words, just narrating to themselves what they just read. Those who did not do so simply continued to reread the material. At the end of the period, all the children were asked to write down what they could remember. The recall test was repeated three or four hours later. All the groups who had engaged in the narration showed better retention than those who had not done so but had merely continued to review the material. The best results were from those spending about 60% of the study time in narration. And that study was from the book Make It Stick, where the authors discovered a few powerful learning techniques that make a huge difference in whether a person remembers knowledge or not. And one of those techniques is called elaboration. It is the act of telling back what you learned and then elaborating on it and making connections. Whether you call it narration or elaboration, the idea is the same. You tell back what you know and then elaborate on it. Long before this book and the study, Charlotte Mason summed up this truth by stating, As we have already urged, there is but one way. That is, children must do the work for themselves. They must read the given pages and tell what they have read. They must perform, that is what we may call, the act of knowing. We are all aware, alas, what a monstrous quantity of printed matter has gone into the dustbin of our memories, because we have failed to perform that quite natural and spontaneous act of knowing, as easy to a child as breathing. I first experienced the power of narration while at Brigham Young University. 
I was exposed to many styles of teaching, but only one style was really effective in retaining the knowledge I learned in that class. In my final higher level class, the professor employed a unique teaching strategy. Looking back, I recognized this technique as narration or elaboration. So these were the requirements for the class. Read two to three research studies per week. Come to class to discuss your thoughts with one another. The uh, professor didn't do any lectures. He had a PowerPoint with some questions to think about, um, questions to discuss with each other. That was it. Then write one research paper and a midterm and a final. So those were the only three assignments and we got credit every time we came to class. There was no study guide for the exams because they were essays. They consisted of questions like, how does forgiveness benefit family life? And how does sacrifice affect relationships? The exams were difficult. I had to write five pages without any notes or anything. But it wasn't the same way that multiple choice were difficult. It required me to synthesize all the information I learned and convey it in a meaningful way. I was forced to think for myself instead of trying to guess which minute details the professor had handpicked from the text and put in a multiple choice quiz. To this day, I still remember all the things I learned from that class. Not because I memorized it, because I made it mine. As I've read about influential people from the past and currently, I've noticed a trend. They had teachers who asked them to read material, to study, and then to narrate it back to make it their own. One that I remember well was Eleanor Roosevelt, who went abroad for school, and she said she had a teacher who asked them to read uh, literature, read history books, biographies, and when the girls would come to class and they would have memorized certain passages or tried, tried to guess what the teacher wanted to know, and the teacher would say, no, I don't want you to parrot back facts to me. I want you to think for yourselves. I want to hear what you think, what you remember, what you thought was interesting. And Eleanor said that that teacher was the most influential teacher on her, helped her to think for herself, to remember things. She remembered all the things she learned in that class because she made it her own. There are so many, so many stories of teachers who have done this and have greatly influenced their students. And what would you know? That reminds me of a quote by Charlotte Mason. She said that our business is to provide children with material in their lessons and leave the handling of such material to themselves. Narration looks simple on the surface, just telling what you heard from the, the reading, but the actual application is difficult in a good way. It requires the mind to really work and it produces powerful results in education. However, the purpose of narration lies much deeper than quizzing the student. It's not for the teacher to find out what the, the student knows. Charlotte said that the value of narration does not lie wholly in the swift acquisition of knowledge and its sure retention. Properly dealt with, it produces a mental transfiguration. It provides much more exercise for the mind than is possible under other circumstances and is and there is a corresponding degree of alertness and acquisitiveness. Each person is unique, and what they gain from a book depends on their, their experience, their maturity, and their past knowledge. 
What your child gained from a book may be much more personalized and therefore influential for them than what you gained from the book. The process of summarizing and synthesizing information is difficult because it requires the brain to transfer information from one side to the other. It is a whole brain activity. In his article, The Method of Narration, Mr. Stanley Boardman beautifully and concisely describes the purpose of narration. This, then, is the purpose of narration, a purpose which we would do well to keep constantly before us. There should be no misconception. It is not a teacher's device designed to find out if the child has completed a given task. It is not an act of verbal memory. It is a process which makes all the difference between a child knowing a thing and not knowing it. Narration is, indeed, like faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, it is the method whereby the child assimilates what he reads. Over the past couple of years, the cost for website hosting, email marketing, and creating a podcast has increased a lot. I decided a while ago that I would never run ads on my podcast or site which leaves me with only a couple of options to pay for the expenses that comes with running a site and podcast. I've decided that Patreon would be the best option for listeners to support the podcast as well as receive exclusive content. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and becoming a member of Patreon, you can join for $5 a month and receive exclusive bonus content like extra articles, mini episodes, and more. I truly believe that parenting is the most difficult yet the most important job in the world. And parents deserve the knowledge and the skills that require them to be the best parent they can be without costing an arm and a leg. So being able to run this podcast ad-free without it being a financial burden on my family is very important to me. If you are enjoying this podcast and it has helped you, please consider becoming a Patreon member. I'm also so excited to be able to offer more content beyond what is in the podcast episode. So if you are interested, the link is in my description. I love talking about the principle, the why behind things, but I also love talking about the practical application. So what does narration look like in real life? So let me start out with a quote from Daisy Golding, who was a student at Charlotte Mason Schools and wrote an article for the Parents Review entitled Knowledge and Narration. She says, what I say is the outcome of my experience. Perhaps it would be wise to remind ourselves that narration can take many forms. It can be oral or written reproduction of the whole or of part. It can be comparison of or contrast between some person or event occurring in the reading and some person or event of which the children already have cognizance. It can take the form of drawing, of writing notes, or the making of a summary. And to your minds will occur other forms which narration can take. Earlier in the episode, I talked about learning styles and how that doesn't actually exist, but there are expression styles. And that's exactly what Daisy Goulding is saying, that narration is going to take different forms depending on the person and the way that they are most comfortable or feels most natural for them to express their knowledge and their feelings and their ideas. 
Starting at age six, children should start required oral narration. Now, children naturally narrate before this time, and they should be allowed to talk and sh and express their ideas, share what has happened to them, and get good practice in speaking and learning how to take what they're thinking and expressing that orally. But Charlotte advised against requiring narration before six. And based on what we know about brain development, this makes total sense. It's quite a strain to make children um, express their ideas or knowledge when it's not coming natural to them. If it's maybe something that they're having difficulty expressing, we shouldn't force that. After six years old, oral narration becomes the main method of knowledge retention after reading from a living book or participating in an object lesson. Charlotte Mason said it's, it's fine for kids to draw about what they've learned to use clay or music or whatever, but all of them should be required to express orally to tell back what they have learned before they do um, some of those other, other methods. And oral narration precedes written narration, which doesn't start until 10 or 11 years old. And this seems odd, especially in our culture where children are asked to write paragraphs in like second grade. But if you start too early before a child's mind is ready, then you risk it becoming a source of frustration and aversion. There is a lot required for the mind to write. And it's not only just thinking about what you want to say, but you also have to worry about grammar and spelling and the strain of the physical fine or the fine motor strain that comes from handwriting. So children should begin with oral narration. It comes easily. They can tell exactly what they want to say. And it's building that foundation of learning how to think well before they can learn to write well. So I'm going to take a quick step back to what I was saying about expression styles. The poets and authors are people who preferred to narrate their ideas via words and language. Musicians narrate their ideas through music, while artists narrate through paintings, while still others express them mathematically or through dance. Although there are many ways people can narrate, the first and foremost is orally. And as children gain skills in the arts, they will be more able to express themselves and narrate their knowledge. But first we begin with oral narration. What I find so powerful about all of this is this is the way adults learn. We ask questions, we wonder, then we search for answers by reading books or experimenting with real things. Then we tell people about what we've learned. And we do this through the mode that we or the medium that we find most natural to us. And this is how all people learn. And that's why Charlotte Mason has said that children are born persons and she employed these same methods with children and had great success. Okay, now to the nitty gritty. What does this look like? Well, when children begin school age six or seven, you begin by reading very small amounts. Begin by reading a paragraph, maybe two, and then asking them to tell back what that was about. As they get better, you can read more, a page, then a chapter before asking them to narrate. Children should narrate after every subject, and this is what it would look like. For history, read a few pages or a chapter, then ask them to tell back what they learned. Occasionally ask them to draw a scene from their history reading in their notebook. 
for nature study and science. After object lesson or an experiment, ask your child to tell what they learned. What did they notice? What happened? Draw and note observations in their nature or science notebook. Now my boys just draw a picture of, if it's an animal or a flower, they draw a picture of it. And I have them record at least three things. What did they notice? What they wondered? And what it reminds them of. And then any other things that they want, their narration. And sometimes I have to write it down for them. In math, when you learn a new principle, you practice it. Then ask your child to explain that principle in their own words. Ask them to give an example or make up their own problem. And occasionally I will ask them to teach that principle to a younger sibling. Now it's just become a habit. My oldest loves to teach his younger siblings about fractions or all um, geometry and angles. He will just go and tell them about it. He's naturally narrating. I don't even have to ask anymore, but they love teaching a principle to a younger sibling. Okay, that is narration and elaboration, the backbone of a Charlotte Mason education, but honestly should be the backbone of any education, especially with now, with what we know about educational psychology and cognitive science. This is the best way for people to learn. The second teaching tool is called generation. And it sounds interesting, you kind of think of generations of people when, or generations of time when you think of this word, but the root word is generate. And in the book Make It Stick, the authors discovered that people were eager to learn and retain much more knowledge when they tried to generate a solution to a problem before being given the solution by the teacher or instructor. Children are much more interested in an answer when they're the ones that ask the question. One of my favorite quotes by Charlotte Mason is that the mind can know nothing save what it can produce in the form of an answer to a question put to the mind by itself. And I'm going to say that again because it's kind of tricky. The mind can know nothing save what it can produce in the form of an answer to a question put by the, to the mind by itself. Pretty much what it's saying is that we're not going to learn anything if we didn't wonder about it. We are going to want to learn when we've asked a question and then we find an answer to it. And we're going to remember that answer if we ask the question. And as a side note, teachers asking open-ended questions are great teaching tools and can ignite narration, especially if a child um, feels a little overwhelmed if you read a whole chapter and there's a lot in there and you're like, okay, narrate. And they're like, I, there's so much I can't think. So breaking it down into smaller pieces and then asking an open-ended question like, can you explain to me why it was so hard to get a railroad across the United States? Or can you describe or justify this person's actions. You can use some of those words. So open-ended questions from the teacher are great teaching tools and should be used in moderation. Traditional education focuses too heavily on information input, things that can be measured on a multiple choice test. And though it may be useful and necessary to memorize some things like timetables, formulas, scriptures, poetry, the human mind is capable of much higher intellectual abilities than simply storing information. The one thing that computers and AI cannot do is wonder and generate original questions. 
In fact, when the New York Times asked several college presidents what students should gain from four, four years of college, it was not to retain a certain amount of knowledge or to graduate with a high test score. The most common answer was to gain skills, and one of which, the highest on the list, was the ability to inquire. Leon Botstein of Bard College said that the primary skills should be analytical skills of inter interpretation and inquiry. Nancy Cantor of Syracuse University said, the best we can do for students is to have them ask the right questions. Education should really be founded on a student's questions on things that they don't know but have a desire to know. When the teacher instructs, lectures, and asks all the questions, it puts the child in a passive role. When a child asks the questions, he's put in an active role. So how can we help them generate questions when they're not interested in the subject? There's a couple of ways. Number one is the question formulation technique from the Right Question Institute. And the basic idea is this, give students a question focus which could be a sentence, a picture, a sound, an object, or even a math question, math problem, and then ask them to generate as many questions as they can and write them down. Afterwards, change the wording to make them more effective using the words how, why, when, where, showing how they can change those up, changing them from open to closed. And after they've changed the wording, they've made the questions more interesting and more effective, then the child chooses a few that they want to pursue. And this is a great way to start an essay, to be based on a question that they asked. And after they've read and researched, then they can write an essay about what they found. The second thing is that you can take turns asking questions as a family or as a class. After reading a chapter or passage, each person asks one question to another person and they answer one question. And this works well in a circle. If one person asks a question, then that person answers, then they ask a question to the next person. We love doing this in our family scripture study every day. And the third thing that you can do to help them become more interested is to give them a problem and have them generate solutions. This is similar to the question formulation technique, uh, just a little different. They're not just writing down lots of questions, but they're actually trying to solve it. And you can give them a day or two, maybe longer, depending on how hard the math or science uh, problem is. Have them Ask them to write down questions as they go. If they solve it, that's great. Ask them to tell you, how did they figure that out? Have them outline their process. And if they didn't, then they're going to be much more interested in the method and the principles, the solution, because they were invested in it. And again, this works best in STEM subjects like math, science, and engineering. There is so much research on inquiry and its role in education. Way too much for me to list in this episode. It would get pretty boring. But I will link some resources for you to check out if you're interested in learning more about the research that's been done on questions and inquiry. And the third tool is retrieval. In Charlotte Mason schools, exam week was an exciting time. Students were asked a few open-ended questions for each subject at the end of the 12-week term. The questions included things like, Tell me about a hero that you read about this term. Explain the process a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. 
Interestingly, an identical learning tool is described in Make It Stick, and that's what's called retrieval. This is what the author Peter Brown says about this tool. Practice at retrieving new knowledge or skill from memory is a potent tool for learning and durable retention. This is true for anything the brain is asked to remember and call up again in the future. Facts, complex concepts, problem-solving techniques, and motor skills. Narrating right after reading is extremely effective at putting the knowledge into long-term memory, and retrieval ensures that it stays there and is easily accessible when needed. But narrating and retrieving knowledge is actually pretty difficult. That's why it seems like it's not as effective as it is, because children's narrations seem subpar when they give them. But narrating and retrieving knowledge is like bamboo. There is a lot of growth happening under the surface that we can't see. And then overnight, there is a ton of growth above the surface. We just have to have faith and keep going. Here's another quote from Peter Brown, the author of Make It Stick. He said that effortful retrieval makes for long, for stronger learning and retention. We're easily seduced into believing that learning is better when it's easier. But the research shows the opposite. When the mind has to work, learning sticks better. So he mentions easy learning. What would easy learning look like? Well, it's things that we can visually see results quickly. Things like multiple choice tests, fill in the blank, label the parts. Those are the things that are quick, easy. The child just says what they, parrots off what we want them to say. We have a visual representation. We feel good about ourselves. Check it off the list and done. That is the easy type of learning. But we want the hard type, the difficult that is actually causing a lot of growth in our child's mind. Asking a person to describe the events that led up to the Revolutionary War is much more difficult than giving them a multiple choice test test and asking them to select all the relevant events that led up to the Revolutionary War. And asking them to compare and contrast it to another event, say the French Revolution, is an even harder question. Peter Brown also points out that Long-term memory capacity is virtually limitless. The more you know, the more possible connections you have for adding new knowledge. And to help build the long-term memory, periodic retrieval of learning helps strengthen connections to the memory and the cues for recalling it, while also weakening routes to competing memories. Retrieval practice that's easy does little to strengthen learning. The more difficult the practice, the greater the benefit. There are lots of studies that show that the longer time between these retrieval sessions, the more difficult it is for the mind to recall that information, but the more likely that the knowledge will stick for a lot longer afterwards. So what does that look like in a real home and school? The first thing you can do, and it's super simple but very effective, is to ask a child to relate. Relate something to what they've just learned. So after reading a chapter or doing an experiment or an object lesson, ask your child, what does this remind you of? What this does is it forces the child to make connections across subjects and across time. It helps them retrieve knowledge from past, past terms or years and connect it to new knowledge, which is going to help solidify all of that. And the next thing you can do is what Charlotte Mason called delayed narration. 
Before you start a lesson, ask your child, what happened last time we read? Or what do you remember from the last lesson? This weekly or bi-weekly practice is a retrieval exercise that is simple but super effective to keep their mind continually retrieving knowledge every week or every other day. And the last thing you should be doing is holding exams at the end of your three-month term or semester. Ask your child open-ended questions that require them to narrate what they've learned. I use words like explain, describe, relate, and tell me about. And that is it. Those are the three tools that should be the workhorse in every home and classroom. Read good books. Ask questions about it. Discuss what you've learned. Ask your child to tell what they've learned. Elaborate on it. Relate it to past knowledge. And require the mind to keep remembering it or keep retrieving it by asking them to share what they what happened last reading or last lesson. And that is the end of season one. I have had such a good experience making these podcast episodes and interviewing interesting people to help you better understand Charlotte Mason's principles and her philosophy. So I'm going to take a three-month break before beginning season two. And you can look forward to season two in which I will be diving into each individual school subject, talking about how Charlotte Mason taught those subjects and how you can apply her principles and methods in your own home. And I'm hoping to show you how you can use these principles, even if you don't homeschool, to make individual subjects more alive and interesting for your children. And you can expect season two to start in the spring. You can find this episode's show notes, as well as more information about this topic on our website, www.simplewonders.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast, or even better, share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic. Until then, go out and work some wonders. Wonders.